You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Bright and early with you today. And that is because we are on the cusp of one of the great festivals of the summer season here in Great Britain. It is glorious Goodwood, the Qatar Goodwood Festival. Five days begin right here, right now. And we on the Nick Luck Daily podcast will be with you right the way through the week. And lots to look forward to through the next 30, 35 minutes as well. Certainly more than I bargained for from two of my guests today and two real racing heavyweights as well. Barry Irwin, principal of Team Valor, owners of Spanish Mission, perhaps the chief threat to Stradivarius today in the Goodwood Cup. He talks to me about that horse's chances and so much more. Also, in our Weatherby's Bloodstock section today, I'll be talking to John Ferguson for so long at the right hand of Sheikh Mohammed and one of the great architects behind the Godolphin operation. He talks to me about Adar, that horse's pedigree, but also his fears for European racing against its United States and Australian counterparts. We'll be looking ahead to Goodwood. We'll be talking about Poetic Flair against Snow Lantern and Alcohol Free in the Sussex Stakes. We'll also be talking about Lady Bothorpe's bid to win her first group one in the Nassau Stakes. And I'll be speaking to her trainer, William Jarvis, later in the programme. And rather out of season, though not completely out of season, given that we're in the middle of the Galway Festival as well, Peter Maloney, racing manager to Kenny Alexander, tells us why Honeysuckle, the star mayor, is staying over hurdles next season rather than an ambitious bid over fences. But David Yates is with me today and the key to glorious Goodwood this afternoon is whether Stradivarius can win his fifth Goodwood Cup after his slightly unlucky or was it slightly lacklustre performance in the Gold Cup at Ascot. Will we get one last great tune out of the old Stradivarius this afternoon, David? I don't think I would get a very good tune out of one at all these days. Uh, I stopped playing the violin some years ago, but didn't play very well back then. Um, I think this is a really interesting one, and I think that that at the start of Glorious Goodwood, this is one of the one of the first races, the Goodwood Cup, which will divide punters almost down the middle. Um, my own view, for what it's worth, Nick, and I've been wrong before, is that I thought the um, the, the cards falling against. Stradivarius in the Gold Cup at Royal Ascot. I, I think that's been overplayed massively. Um, yes, he ran into trouble in the straight. Yes, he might have been further back than uh, than was ideal. But the idea to me that he was in any way an unlucky loser is is pure fantasy. It's such a shame that we don't have subjectivist in the Goodwood Cup field. I do hope that we see the horse again um, because. At Ascot, he looked like the just the the new force in uh, in staying races. But but with Strad, I, I thought that yes, there were probably uh, reasons that he could have got third. But he he was beaten over seven lengths in in fourth place. And and for me, I think even even John Gosden the other day, I think he might have said, you know, Frankie had something like a brain freeze or a brain storm, which almost implied that that in some way there was a you know that the, the jockey was was 
to blame for the defeat. Maybe that's uh, I, I'm overplaying that in my own mind. But for me, I thought that he was uh, maybe not. I, I thought he was beaten fair and square. I think he could have got closer, but to me, he just lacked his uh, his previous sparkle. I've taken him on today with Trushan. Um, I think that the, the the prices between the two now are close enough when you consider their relative achievements. But certainly the fact that there were, what was it, 30 millimetres of rain at Goodwood on Sunday, which would have certainly helped uh, Trushan as regards his, his preferred racing surface, when, of course, he was a late scratching from the Gold Cup. So that's how I see it. I thought, yes, there were you know, reasons that he could have maybe finished a, a place or two, well, a pl- one place closer to subjectivist, but I certainly didn't think he was an unlucky loser. Uh, the chief threat to Stradivarius in the in the Cup looks to be Spanish Mission, who ran such a great race, one upsides him in the Gold Cup at Ascot. Barry Irwin is the principal of Team Valor, the uh, owners, the co-owners with Gary Barber of Spanish Mission. He's been a cracking horse for you, Barry, there's no doubt about that. Um, what sort of confidence do you approach the Goodwood Cup with? Well, everything was looking great until it rained um it was firm good to firm and we were pretty happy um we thought we were live to run a competitive race with Stradivarius then when the rain hit um we don't know what the the condition of the course is going to be I see he's drifted in the odds from four to one to six to one so that'll give you a, a bit of an indication right there did he run exactly as you expected at Ascot did he exceed your expectations he ran well. Um, I thought he'd run a little bit better. Um, I think that extended two miles or two and a half, I just think he can't do that. You know, I thought he lost his punch at the end. I think if it was two miles, I think he would have run second. You know, um, he wasn't going to win it. But he, he, given, you know, what we learned from the race, we were happy enough with it. I think that two miles is better for him, though. And interestingly, you've talked quite a bit in the past about potentially taking this horse to Melbourne. Now, we know now that that is fraught with difficulties for more reason than one. It's not impossible, however. Is it still in your mind? Absolutely. Um, We're going to run him one more time in the Lonsdale. And then after that, he goes into the quarantine mode. And it's, it's, as you said, it's it's quite a challenge of a trip. but we, we put the pieces together. i got to give a lot of credit to Andrew Balding and his staff because it's going to be tough on them. But um, the source has been good to them, and, and they're going to step up to the plate and do the job for us. As far as your own operations concerned, your global operation, we spoke in, in March, and you were saying how you were trying to get most of your stock out of America and into the U.K., and we had quite a long chat about uh, medication regulations and, and that side of the game is that still the plan or are you have you slightly backpedaled on that no i think what we're going to do now is i'd like to have half of my horses in europe and the other half in the united states um now that they've passed the legislation to create uh, what they call an authority to oversee drugs and the united states anti-doping association will be involved um, i'm the one that originally came up with that whole idea to bring USADA in in 2004 in an editorial I wrote in the Blood Horse magazine. And I want to support that. And even though it's the authority doesn't um, come into official being until um, July of 2022, I think people are already um, 
acting in a different way. I don't think that the cheating over here is as rampant as it was. I see a few guys that I suspect as being cheaters. They're backing off. There's still some people that are going nuts. But I think that as we get closer to the date, I think you'll see a lot of that shrink. So I'm happy to race here as well. Uh, what's, what's the temperature been like subsequent to the Derby debacle? I think people are, they're in two camps, basically. Um, I think the horsemen, while a lot of horsemen don't really like Bob Baffert, um, they don't support him, they are, they're in his camp on this one because they fear the same thing that Baffert says happened to him could happen to somebody else, but they're in the minority. Um, you know, in the court of public opinion, Baffert's a big loser. Um, in the court of law, he's got basically three things out there. One is the New York Racing Association one, which he won, and I thought he would win because he, he went up against a quasi-public uh, outfit. Um, he then has the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission, and I think he'll win that one too, only because lawyers and private enterprise seem to always beat the pants off of civil service lawyers. The one that he's not going to win is with Churchill Downs. And Churchill Downs has barred him for at least two years from running a horse there. You know, he's, he's got no shot to be in the Derby. All of the lead-up races with the points that are available to qualify a horse for the Derby, he's not going to be allowed to run in those. And I think that if he doesn't if he's unable to run in the Derby, his client base is going to desert him, and he's going to be gone for two years for you know for all ostensible purposes. And you'll have been keeping a close eye because I know you follow these things uh, pretty carefully. You've been keeping a close eye on the whole uh, Jim Bolger allegations, hearings in Ireland lately. Um, how did you view the way that was playing out? I was not surprised to hear him say that. Number one. Um, Number two, he's not the only one that suspects that sort of thing. What I was kind of disappointed in, um, it seems like the establishment in Ireland, all they were interested in doing was, was putting a happy face on it and trying to cover up by inviting him to um, you know, speak um, basically under oath uh, in a a public setting where they were really sincerely interested in finding out what he knows or what he thinks he knows or what he suspects, they would have invited him down, sat down with him and talked to him. That's the way you do it. You know, instead they're all rallying around the flag and you had that one, uh, Ruby Walsh come out and with his column, you know, basically chastising Bolger Jessica Harrington took a position, you know, that, well, we should check into it or whatever. But um, I think when a guy of his stature and of his credibility makes a comment like that, um, it, it behooves the authorities to hear the guy in private and see what he's what he thinks he knows. Barry Owen there, principal of the American-based racing operation team Valor, who have slightly revised their policy as to where they're going to send their horses moving forward. And the one thing, Dave Yates, is that if you are familiar with the Barry Owen oeuvre, you go in asking about a routine horse in a in a pattern race and you come out with all sorts of interesting goodies. What did you make of that? I thought it was very interesting that the stuff about 
Bob Baffert, he's, he made no attempt to pull any punches there. I thought that was really interesting listening. And also, um, when you asked him about Jim Bolger, also, that I, I thought that was uh, very thought-provoking. I, I thought that there was... I, I thought that in, in Britain and Ireland, I thought that this call that in some way that that Jim Bolger should, should name names, I thought showed a, an, an alarming and extraordinary ignorance of the way that the libel laws work in uh, certainly in Britain that that, that, that it, it simply just wouldn't be able to do uh, Jim Bolger simply wouldn't be able to do that and keep his house. Um, I, I thought at the start of the interview, uh, it, the the observation that although the, although there were no guilty parties as such uh, that had yet been discovered, that the, the role of USADA in 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 looking into the issue of drugs in American racing had already had an effect whereby Barry Irwin felt that that some people that he he perceived as being wrongdoers had maybe retreated from that. That was something that we discussed on the NLD a few weeks ago. And I think I said that that I approached this initially from a, a rather pessimistic idea that it was going to take some sort of smoking gun um, to, to solve this problem if you feel that there is a problem there. But from what Barry Irwin was saying with the idea that um, that the, the, the methods by which uh, cheats might be caught, that those are being improved, I think that that will certainly have an effect in Britain and Ireland as well. I think that I think if you if we if we really ramped up uh, out of training testing, whereby the authorities were allowed to say to a trainer, "Where is this horse?" and if the trainer said, "I don't know, it's not on the premises," if the if the authorities were able to say, "You must get us that horse within twenty four hours, or we will prevent it from running for a period of time," I think that that would have a very dramatic and a very positive effect. Okay, talk of Jim Bolger leads us neatly on to Poetic Flair, who's going to be one of the highlights of the week in the Sussex Stakes, where he takes on two three-year-old fillies in alcohol-free and snow lantern. I know Palace P is not here tomorrow in the Sussex Stakes, Dave, but everyone else is having a go. This is fantastic stuff. Yeah, it is. And a bit like um, with the, the July meeting, the fact that travel abroad is a bit difficult at the moment is is really beneficial to some of our marquee races in midsummer you know i've i've never seen a falmouth stakes like that one at newmarket earlier this month and i think it's it's true here that the connections of of snow lantern might have looked to france but but then uh, haven't done and that they were concentrating on either the nassau or the sussex stakes so it's sort of an ill wind that blows nobody any good Ray Gilpin used to the, the late racing journalist used to used to phrase it in a slightly different way, um, but it, it yeah it's it's a it's a really good race. I mean I think that can you can question whether the form of Snow Lantern alcohol free is that is that anywhere near the form of Poetic Flare thus far this season? My own my own theory on that is is that it's not. But as you say everyone is turning up to have a go and i think that 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 is one of the one of the benefits of the fact that travel abroad at the moment uh, to race with horses is very difficult 
Well, no doubt the presence of Snow Lantern in the Sussex Stakes makes the task for Lady Bothorpe a little bit more straightforward in the Nassau Stakes, even though she's got some smart fillies to contend with, notably the Prince of Wales' second and Breeders' Cup heroine, or Daria. Lady Bothorpe victory would be massively popular. Her trainer, William Jarvis, joins me now. William, how happy have you been with her since that gut-wrenching and rather luckless defeat in the Falmouth Stakes? I've been very, very pleased with her, Nick. Um, she, she came out of uh, the, the Falmouth Stakes very well. Um, she's been training very well. And uh, look, we haven't, done, we haven't done an awful lot with her. We've just been keeping ticking her over, but her ticking over. But uh, um, she looks in great shape. Obviously, it was very upsetting for you to take at the time her defeat in the Falmouth Stakes. Having watched it in the cold light of day, how unlucky do you still feel she was? I, I do think I, I I still stand by my view that I thought that she was the best filly in the race, um, but I don't. I I do see that Kieran couldn't have done much much anything else in in the in the way the race was was run, you know. So uh, yeah, so I, I'm not I'm not I'm not beating myself up, and I'm not beating Kieran up about the, uh, about what happened. But I I still. I put it this way: I, I know Snow Lantern isn't going to take us on in the Nassau Stakes, but I, I would be—I would have been quite happy to have taken her on. And particularly at ten furlongs, which looks as though it's—it's it's right in your in your wheelhouse. Is there a chance, given that she's by Nathaniel, that actually ten furlongs is going to be her best trip? Uh, very, very possibly. I believe that she's the only filly, and she's the only horse side by Nathaniel to have won a group race. Uh, um, under 10 furlongs uh i believe so when she won the valiant stakes she was she so yeah that must come into consideration and but there is a lot of speed on her downside so uh but i'm confident that she'll stay the 10 furlongs oh and one point that hasn't really been you know majored since since newmarket maybe because she's run three such good races on good to firm this season is that her career best remains a, a run behind palace pier on on good to soft given the prevailing forecast and prevailing conditions at, at goodwood how much more does that encourage you it does encourage me i mean we were certainly me as a three and a four year old we were we were absolutely adamant that she was very much ground dependent but uh, she's pretty well proved this year having having run so well in the it was quick ground at, at Newmarket in the Dahlia Stakes and it was pretty quick in the Falmouth and it was quick at Royal Ascot so uh, I think she's as she's uh, as she's become a five-year-old she's become less less ground dependent but we do know that she does handle easy underfoot conditions. And William you wore your heart on your sleeve after the after the Falmouth just just give us an indication really why that was. Well mate you know, it's we we are a small yard. We're very much a family unit, and and the the staff mean an awful lot to me. And uh, you know, the whole we were we were deflated. Um, but on the other hand, we were on absolutely cloud nine after we won the Dahlia Stakes. Um, and it's the highs and lows of the sport of horse racing. Um, it's uh, we, we've <laughs> we've been in it for a long time, Nick, and and we try and make the most of the very good. Day. And, and we try and have to pick ourselves up um, after a less good day. William Jarvis, their trainer of Lady Bothorpe. David Yates, it would be the hardest of hearts that wasn't cheering for this mayor in the, uh, in the Nassau Stakes on Thursday. Yeah, it certainly would. I think that she's become 
an element there's an element of public property i think about lady bothort these days which i think is very rare in flat racing outside the absolutely exceptional horses like the the frankels and the enables it's it's strange to think that it's in june of last year that lady bothorpe won at lingfield off a mark of 81 and she's done nothing but improve since then and and she's run some cracking races this season uh she was a, a, an excellent second to palace pier and of course she didn't get the breaks in the falmouth behind snow lantern but i'm really pleased that they've decided to uh, keep the partnership with kieran schumach i think he's been an integral part of this this mayor's success okay things didn't go to plan at Newmarket last time but I think he's got some credit in the bank and I'm very pleased that 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 they see it that way too I think that this would be a really popular success if she were to win the Nassau but without being rude to a Sheen Murphy in in my mind it would be a more popular success if that victory came under Kieran Schumach and as I say I'm, I'm glad that they've decided to keep the pairing together. So just changing codes briefly, and appropriately enough, given that Galway's on this week as well. Uh, news from Peter Maloney, racing manager to Kenny Alexander, the owner of Honeysuckle, that she would stay over hurdles this season. Peter, we talked about the possibility of her going over fences a few times when we spoke last year. Uh, you've decided to, to shelve that. What's the what's the thinking behind the decision? Um, I think we've all decided it's probably the sensible option. Um, you know, uh, she's top-class hurdler, and... Uh, as uh, I think somebody mentioned this evening, mentioned, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And um, I think I'd, I'd, I'd personally, I, I, personally, I was quite um, pro going the chasing route at one stage. And then I think we, I watched her in Punchtown and she didn't jump that particularly well that day. And I thought, oh, my God, uh, you know, <laughs> this is torture. I'm not sure I could watch her over fences for three miles. So um, it was kind of swung swung me a little bit, um, and um, I think uh, Henry again, you know, thought it was a sensible option, and Kenny agreed. You know, I think you know, listen, it's um, she's a, a wonderful hurdler, and let's let's make the most of that. And so, do you? I mean, realistically, do you think that is that is that is going to be the way that the rest of her career pans out? I mean, please God injury permitting and everything she's a mayor you know eventually she'll go back to kenny's farm as a brood mayor um so what we're looking at injury permitting is a two another two years so um and yeah i mean if we were going to go the chasing route we'd have to do it now um but so i think this is probably you know set in stone now we're going to stick to the hurdles Peter Maloney, racing manager, Kenny Alexander, owner of Honeysuckle. That's fairly straightforward, Dave. You can kind of see why they're doing it. I, I, I know Peter quite fancied the idea of the Dawn Run emulation, but when push comes to shove, um, I guess this is the, the straight bat option. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's only because Dawn Run did it, isn't it, that people consider uh, doing that these days. I don't really understand it, Nick, if I'm perfectly honest, and that's simply because... I would I would just as soon win the champion hurdle as I would any race over fences at the Ch- at the Cheltenham Festival, be it the Gold Cup or the Ryanair or the or the Queen Mother Champion Chase. I think that the 
the champion hurdle is genuinely one of our greatest jump races. And if I had a horse who were capable, uh, who was capable of winning that, and I thought that there was a good chance they could go back and win it the following spring, uh, I would certainly stick with that. So I think that it's overstating it to say it's a no-brainer, but I think it's a pretty clear decision that uh, the right thing to do is to stay where we are. We're very pleased here on the podcast to continue our association with Fitzdares. Their chief executive, Will Woodhams, joins me now. Uh, Will, you've pledged a million pounds in support to horse racing over the over the next year, excluding your your duty levy and tax. Announcing this on day one of of glorious Goodwood. Just just tell us why. Uh, you know what? It's a, it's a, bookmaking is tricky, but we mustn't forget uh, the people that pay our wages and it's racing fundamentally is the greatest sport to bet on and we just said you know there's a lot that you know the euros are created a lot of buzz and excitement people are betting a lot on tennis and golf these days but we know where our bread is buttered and we just wanted to put our money where our mouth is racing's had a really tough time and we wanted to invest right from the bottom of the sport to the top well clearly you invest vast sums of money in 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 this podcast and george scott and charlie fellows podcast as well but actually where is that where is the bulk of this of this million pounds going a direct race course through streaming and sponsorship uh, i think that's the important part um we put about 100 grand aside as a fund for younger trainers who are up and coming uh, a big chunk of money six figures has been spent on the owners and trainers and there's no as you mentioned it's no surprise i'm talking to on the first morning of Goodwood. We really, during lockdown, and we have a lot of owners and trainers who bet with us, we saw how supportive they were and kept racing alive in the bleakest time. And in a kind of, uh, obviously prize money is the principal way we should be rewarding them, but we felt like investing this £100,000 in the owners and trainers at Goodwood to make it the best facility, I think, in the world for owners and trainers. And you, uh, if anyone's listening this morning, they'll see it this afternoon, hopefully, if they have a runner or a trainer who has the runner. It's incredible, and I do think we need to lift the experience at race courses, there's been lots of underinvestment, and yes, I know bookmakers sponsor races and do lots of TV adverts and this and that. But actually, when you you want to actually have amazing experiences when you're on course and really have a phenomenal time, and we think we're going to deliver this. It is Tuesday, so we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their global stallion app, and their stallion book. There have been few more influential figures in bloodstock over the last three decades than today's guest. John Ferguson, a bloodstock journey with many twists and turns. He worked for Nick Gaisley over jumps, for bloodstock agent Dick O'Gorman, with whom he formed a long and hugely successful partnership. He bought horses for big hitters, Australians Kerry Packer and Lloyd Williams. He bought Group 1 horses Pentire and First Island for Moller's Racing. But it was his role with Sheikh Mohammed, initially as Bloodstock Advisor and then as Chief Executive of Godolphin for many years, that brought him to, to real prominence. He's been out of the Godolphin role now for four years, but still retains an active and professional interest in the Bloodstock world, as well as a keen eye on the fledgling training career of his son James. Uh, John, thank you for, for joining the podcast. John, with that slight sense of detachment, how do you see the sports position now in 2021? Nick, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the, the podcast. I do love listening to it. I feel, I feel, first of all, I've been incredibly lucky to have been involved in, in many great facets of this business, from breeding to training jumpers and having a son who now trains. And I've 
the last few years, I left Godolphin over four years ago, and the last few years has given me an opportunity to really look back and see the business, the bloodstock industry, and where it's going around the world. What I see is, is, is Europe and the wonderful things that a few people did for us in terms of creating this absolutely five-star crown jewel bloodstock industry that we have in Europe and, and, and watching other people coming and playing their part and, and trying to um, emulate it. So, so what, it, what is it in Europe that has, for your, for your money, set the standard? What has changed over the last two or three decades? I think I go back further than that, Nick, really. And I go back to this wonderful creature called Northern Dancer. And then a group, John Magna, Vincent O'Brien, Robert Sangster, going to America and buying the very, very best and the best sons of Northern Dancer. And I think John would would very much say that Vincent O'Brien, his father-in-law, was instrumental in deciding that Northern Dancer was the man. He then bought so much of the best bloodstock back to Ireland for Vincent to train. And then the Dubai royal family and Prince Khalid and the Neocuses followed on and did very much the same thing. And as a result of that time, Northern Dancer created Sadler's Wells, who created Galileo, who created Frankel. And... Northern Dancer created Danzig, who created Invincible Spirit, who created Green Desert, who created Kingman. Um, and then you have, you know, on the Seeking the Gold, who Sheikh Mohammed bought into, created Dubai Millennium, who created Dubawi. So we've got these wonderful sires, thanks to a very few people who were pathfinders in getting the very, very best bloodstock, not only in terms of stallions, but also broodmares, and bringing it and bringing it to Europe and creating this wonderful fabric that we now have. And it's something that we can be incredibly proud of and have enjoyed over the last 50 years. But I, I look forwards, and maybe this is an old man with a young son who's made a successful start of training, but I look forwards and I, I worry about the future as much as I enjoy looking at the past. What are you most worried about, John? I think... I think when you look at world bloodstock, um, you now look at you look at the United States, obviously. And the United States has always been a powerhouse, and that's where so much of this bloodstock came from. But when you look at it and you analyze what's happening there, they're currently running on $1.14 billion worth of prize money for 19,000 folds. So we, within, including England and Ireland, we're at about 15% of that level. So the prize money uh, difference is massive. And then you look at what's happening. And since 2019, online sports betting has been legalized in America, which means that it's no longer exclusive to Las Vegas. And 10 states have now got online sports betting. And during COVID, wagering on online uh, platforms increased by 33% on horse racing. And from June 2019 to June 2021, there was an increase of 23%. So post-COVID, it's still there and it's still operating. So this is going to have a massive effect on bloodstock in America and bloodstock in the UK because that prize money level will go from 1 billion to 2 billion. And that directly goes back into prize money, 8 to 12% on course and 2.5% off course. So... American owners, racehorse owners, are going to have very, very large pockets of cash, uh, which they won on the race course, and they will be reinvesting in our very best bloodstock. 
And we've seen over the last two years, 150 yearlings go from Newmarket and Goffs to, to race directly in America. And imagining that doubles, we'll be losing a huge amount of bloodstock to America. And of course, they'll be coming in buying our very best horses, not the Group 1 horses owned by those key people who keep our racing at the top of the tree. But the Group 2 horses, the Group 3 horses, the listed horses, the big handicappers, I can see them going to America and, and obviously on to Australia, and Saudi Arabia, the Middle East and everywhere else. And I just worry in many ways um, that we will become a nursery for these other international powerhouses in the same way that New Zealand is a nursery to Australia. And that would be a pity. It, it would be a shame. You talk about the, the key players in the sport who will always sustain it, always underpin it. Is that guaranteed, do you think? Is it guaranteed that Godolphin, for whom you worked for so many years, and, and Coolmore, is it guaranteed that they will continue in perpetuity at the same level of investment that they have been for the last three or four decades? Well, I think, I mean, that's a very good question, Nick, and at the end of the day, you'll have to ask them. But I think if you take a step back and you imagine yourself in their shoes, if you look at Coolmore, they have a very, very successful operation in Australia, as do Godolphin. A supremely successful operation in Australia. Um, Judmont have very successful operations in America. Um, Prince Sheikh Fahad from Qatar has, 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 has been very successful in the United States. So I think everybody takes a step back and everybody looks at the overall gambit. And when you look at Australia now, there are $900 million in prize money for a pool of 13,000 folds. And and uh, one interesting thing I always, always not amuses me, but it's a, it's a, it's a fact. Oshorse released something last week to say there are 52 races in Australia worth a million dollars, 29 in America and seven in Europe. It rather tells the story. And, you know, you've been involved working closely with, with Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, when Prince Khalid Abdullah died, we did a, a tribute to him on this podcast where I talked to all the people that had been involved with him since his, his, the, the beginning of his, of his racing career. Likewise, Sheikh Hamdan, when he sadly passed away at the beginning of this year. And what came through most strongly was, yes, these were huge, sometimes unwieldy enterprises with thousands and thousands of broodmares and property everywhere. But really at the heart of it was one individual's passion driving it. And when that one individual had gone, it's not quite the same anymore. Absolutely right, and, and you know when you look at when you look at someone like Prince Khaled and his and his obvious passion and that time during the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and buying all those wonderful mares like Slightly Dangerous and breeding horses like you know Dancing Bro, so many of them, it, it, you know that is something that is the lifetime's work. Uh, the same with Sheikh Hamdan, and you know you look at Sheikh Hamdan, and over the last five years he's had something like two thousand five hundred seventy runners in the UK. It's a massive, they're massive boots to fill, and they've spent you know over a hundred million dollars in yearlings, and, and and it's wonderful news that Sheikh Hissa wants to continue, and she obviously has a has a real interest and a real passion, and the same goes for Sheikh Mohammed because you know he is a man who is who is always driven to succeed, and and he's loved the challenge of horse racing and the. And, and the fact that Sheikh Mohammed loves the fact that money can't actually buy it and that it, and it's taken a journey. And, you know, you look at Adair, who won uh, the King George on Saturday. I mean, that gave us so much pleasure. And me, obviously, I, I left a long time ago, but it gave me so much pleasure. And I tell you for why. And it just tells people about this industry. Adair's by, obviously, by Frankel, but he's out of Anna Salai, who should have won the Irish 1,000 guineas. But she's out of Anna Palariva, who's out of Anna of Saxony, out of Anna Matryoshka, who's out of Anna Paola, and when 
Liam O'Rourke and I started at Dalham. Robert Acton, on the instructions of Sheikh Mohammed, bought Anna Paola, a big German mare. And now five generations, five or six, five gen- six generations later, you have a derby winner. And that's, that is what makes this a lifetime's work. Where is the, where is the next custodian of, of European bloodstock? And how do, we, how do we go about ensuring that, that a system is robust enough to make people want to produce horses here and to race horses here? What's the, what's the solution? That's the key. That's the key, Nick. Making people want to own and breed racehorses here. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're very spoiled. We have the most wonderful racecourses. So if I say we have the most wonderful stadiums, we now need the football players to play in those stadiums. We have them now, but we're looking, we're watching Manchester City on a Saturday afternoon now. And I just hope that in 10 years' time, we're not watching my childhood heroes all the shot. Because. Because at the end of the day, it's not really a laughing matter, but at the end of the day, that is what I see. And if you see New Zealand and you see how they provide 12% of the horses into Australia and they get 25% of the prize money back, they're doing a great job of breeding, staying horses in New Zealand, which now the Europeans are now now coming in and, and, and attacking. And the reason they're coming in and attacking is because the Australians, with $900 million in prize money, can afford to come in here. Any horse rated 85, 89, 90 gets a mile a quarter. You'll get a bid from Australians within 48 hours. And it's having people who can afford to say no. You've got to have people who love the business here and can afford to say no. Because it's very hard to say no when you're offered £400,000 for a horse whose next start's going to be £8,000 to the winner. So what's the answer, John? What do we do? I think the answer is we need to sit down and, and have a really good think about a, a five and a ten-year strategy. Um, and it needs to be. Everyone needs to understand that that I am not. I am not crying wolf. Australia and the United States and Saudi now, for example, Saudi Arabia, you know, has, has created the the Saudi Cup, the richest race in the world. But not only that. I understand they've now got 12 racecourses being built and, and they're going to have a, a massive influence on this game going forwards. So, you know, and where are they going to come? They're going to come and get their bloodstock from the best place they can, which is currently here. So we, we have to somehow create a strategy that protects breeders and allows breeders to breed horses here for, and owners to enjoy owning horses here for a fair return. And... Um, this is, this is not a job for one person. This is a collaboration um, amongst the whole industry, and the whole industry needs to take it really seriously um, uh, and, 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 and work together to, to, find, to find the answers. And I think, you know, you can go on about the levy, and I, as I understand it, 0.6% of UK turnover goes into goes into prize money as opposed to as i said i think it's but i don't think i know it's eight to twelve percent on on course in america and two and a half percent off course that makes a huge difference um and uh, but that's not the answer you know that's going to be very difficult to get the government to agree to a change on things like that so we have to think about what what are the answers and how we can make a difference john ferguson another example of slightly getting more than a bargain for there dave Yes, you, you certainly did. I mean, the the figures that 
John Ferguson quoted here were, were, were really quite alarming, weren't they? The, the, the 52 races in Australia worth a million dollars, 29 in the US and just seven in Europe, not seven in the UK, but seven across the continent. I mean, there's been a perennial battle, hasn't there, between between uh, the purses in in Britain, particularly and elsewhere, and that, that the, the logical thing that ought to happen is that that the best horses do go elsewhere. Um, I think that the pressure is being cranked up. The, the horses who are not the horses aspiring to be a Group 1 horse, but those who are slightly beneath Group 1 level, but have the potential to reach Group 1 level and that are not owned by the real behemoth owners of either Coolmore or, or the uh, the ruling families from the Middle East, that's where the trouble starts because it, it's it's so important for British racing that those stay here and widen the competition and make it more interesting. We, we don't want to see Aldershot uh, instead of Man City. And I suppose that the... the the nasty truth is that we're closer to than that uh, to that than we have been for some decades. Do you have a tip for me this afternoon? I'd like a Man City rather than an Aldershot, if possible. Yes, I'm going to try and help you there. I, I'm going to go with Migration in the first, who I know oh. is towards oh. the head of the market. In fact, is at the head of the market, but ran such an excellent race. Uh, at Salisbury after such a long time off for David Manuizier. Uh, that was over uh, a mile, and he goes back up to 10 here. He's won at a mile and 10 in the past, and he travelled so well, didn't get the brakes. I think he's one pound higher in the weights, but that's neither here nor there. And uh, I feel a bit guilty tipping a favourite in a big field like that, but try as I may, I couldn't get away from migration. So he's the selection in the 150 at Goodwood needs trouble in running migration because he won't go through a gap according to his trainer and his owner gail brown uh, and was uh, a gamble at salisbury last time but goodwood should suit him absolutely ideally uh, that was tuesday the 27th of july we will see you again tomorrow when we'll be reflecting on all the highlights from day one of glorious goodwood bye-bye <laughs>